the gospel according to Mark, the 12th chapter. Coming out of the English Standard Version, I'm going to begin reading at the top of the chapter, verse 1. It says, and he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent the servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Somebody say empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and he treat, and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Let's pray. Jesus, we are thankful and grateful to you this morning. You're good. And God, we're asking that you would make the scriptures plain to your people this morning. I pray that you would help me to communicate what the Bible says with a sense of clarity. And that you would bring truth to your people, conviction when necessary, edify, exhort, encourage. Most importantly, help us to leave here with hope and to be motivated to be transformed and conformed to the image of your son. Comfort us, Father, and we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So one thing about uh, religious institutions, or I should say more specifically, ever since God has been establishing the quote-unquote people of God or a, a group of people who he claimed as his own, as long as that has been a thing, uh, there has always been corrupt leadership. That's nothing new. There, it's always been that way. So when you go through the Bible, the moment you see leadership, you're going to see a corruption of it. And you see this theme just throughout the Old Testament. And then, of course, once we get to the New Testament, it's more blatant and obvious. But as you go through the Bible, you see as long as there's been a people of God and that as long as God has had leadership over people, there's always been a sense in which the, the, the leadership is corrupt or the leadership is 
uh, oppressing people or the leadership is exploiting people in some way. For example, when we look at the nation of Israel who were enslaved in Egypt, for example, they're in Egypt and what's happening to the Israelites, they're being oppressed and afflicted by Pharaoh who was the king of the Egyptians. He had them in harsh slavery, had them in harsh bondage. And what does God do in response to the slavery? He raises up Moses as a righteous leader who would take Pharaoh's place. So now it's no longer Pharaoh harshly ruling over the Israelites. God raised up a godly prophet who would lead them the right way. We look at the story of, of the kings, and we see that in 1 Samuel it says that the children of Israel, they come to uh, Samuel the prophet and they say, we want God to give us a king. We, we, we want to have a king rule over us like the rest of the nations. And it says that Samuel was discouraged by their request. So he went back to God and he told God what they said. And God says, Samuel, understand that they did not reject you. They're rejecting me. And then God says, here's what I'm going to do. He says, I'm going to grant their request. He says, I'm going to give them a king. But there's a caveat. He says, the king that I'm going to give them, he's going to take all their livestock and he's going to take it for himself. Then he's going to take all of Israel's sons and put them on the front lines of battle. Then he's going to take your men and your women and he's going to make them his slaves. So he's like, let them know I'm going to give them the king, but let them know how this is going to look. In other words, this king is going to be corrupt. And we know this king to be King Saul, who was an extremely corrupt Israelite king. But again, God did not leave Israel under his leadership. What did he do? He took the anointing from Saul and he raised up King David, who would shepherd the people of Israel with the heart of Yahweh. So we see this theme in which there'll be corrupt leaders oppressing God's people, and then God will let it go on for a season. Then he will remove them and replace them with righteous leaders. This is the pattern we see in the Bible, and I believe this is the same pattern that exists today. Here we are all these years later, and we have a lot of corruption in the Christian church. There is a lot of corrupt leadership. There's a lot of scandals. There's a lot of uh, manipulation of people. There's a lot of abuse of power. There's a lot of exploitation. You see these things all the time. And listen, I'm not just talking about uh, I'm not just talking about uh, the stuff you see in celebrity culture. I'm not just talking about the famous stuff. I'm talking about even on the local level, you're always going to have corrupt leaders in the midst of righteous leaders. Jesus put it this way in the parable. He talks about the, the, the wheat being amongst the tares. And if you read that parable carefully, it says the tares were placed there by Satan. So he's putting them in the midst of the people of God, dressed up like sheep to deceive the people, to oppress them and to manipulate them and to make everybody give up on this thing called the church. Even on the local level, these things happen. So what do we got to say about all of this? I want us all to be able to recognize corrupt leadership when we see it. So we're going to talk about some signs of it based on the text. And I want us to view these things not with a, a heart of discouragement, but with the understanding that whenever there is corrupt leadership, God also provides the alternative. Whenever there's corrupt, abusive leadership, it doesn't make up the whole thing. There's always going to be pockets in which God is raising up people who want to serve his people 
the right way. Mark chapter 12, Jesus is telling a parable. I'll read the first couple of verses, then we're going to explain what it means. Verse 1, and he began to speak to them in parables. He says, a man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. Now, whenever you're reading parables in the New Testament, before you even begin the interpretive process, before you try to figure out what it means, the first thing you have to do is identify the pictures. You got to identify the characters. You have to identify the images. So that's what we're going to do first. The, the first person that we're introduced to is the one who's called a man. Later in the text, he's identified as the owner of the vineyard, right? So it says a man planted a vineyard. The man represents God the Father. And it's, it's going to become clear by the end of the passage. So the man or the owner of the vineyard represents God the Father. Amen? The vineyard represents the people of God, specifically the, at this time the nation of Israel. God's chosen people. So the vineyard represents the nation of Israel, the people of God who existed at that time. Next, he says he leased it to tenants. The tenants represent the religious authority that was in operation during Jesus's time. So this would be the scribes, the chief priests, the Pharisees. Those were those made up the, the leadership of Jerusalem. That was the governing body of the nation of Israel. Right. Verse two says, and when season came, he sent a servant. The servant, or I should say servants, represents the prophets. So this is God's righteous messengers whose role is usually to call people to repentance. Then it says there was fruit in the vineyard. The fruit represents kingdom productivity. It, it is, it is uh, when the people of God, the vineyard, are, are producing uh, the, the ministerial effectiveness and, the, and the, the, the lifestyle effectiveness that God requires out of all those who claim to know him. Okay? So the man represents who? Uh-huh. The vineyard represents who? Uh-huh. The people of God, specifically Israel. And the tenants represent who? The governing body, the scribes, chief priests, the Pharisees. And the, the, the servant represents who? The prophets, uh-huh, and the fruit is what? There we go. Okay, so now that we understand what the images are, we can begin to interpret it. So let's take it from the top. He says he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the season came, he sent the servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. Now, when I was reading this, here's the first thing I noticed. At the end of verse one, it says that the man who owned the vineyard leased it to the tenants. Anybody ever leased something before? Raise your hand if you've leased a car. Do you own that car? No, because there's miles restrictions. You can't bring it back another color that, that you, you can only do. With that car, what the owner, the bank, <laughs> gives you permission to do with that car. So when it says that the owner of the vineyard, the people of God, 
He says the owner leased the people out to the tenants who were the leadership. What does that tell us about the relationship between the leadership and the people? They don't own them. They're not their property. They belong to God, and the leadership is supposed to steward what belongs to God, including the people. Now, this is important because one of the earliest signs you'll see of corrupt leadership is a territorial possession over the people that come to the church. Whether people are viewed as the property of the pastor or the property of the leadership or the property of that organization, they're viewed as if they own them. So what they do is, and some mean no harm by, by others do, but what will happen is you'll just pay attention to the terminology. And you'll hear pastors say things like, my members, my sheep, my people. You don't see any of those terms used in the Bible when it comes to leadership in the church. You don't see that type of language. There's not a single scripture in the Bible where a pastoral or apostle or prophetic leader refers to the people in the church as his sheep. Because they're not. They're Jesus' sheep. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd and I lay down my life for the sheep. Unless you have died and rose again on the third day, you cannot take ownership over God's people. So the first red flag you need to pay attention to is a sense of ownership that leadership tends to have over the people that come to the church. And here's one way you'll know. (laughs) Here's one way you'll know. If there's a culture of ownership from the perspective coming from the pulpit. See how they react when people leave. (laughs) See how they react when people leave. And look, let's just step outside of Christianity for a minute. Just just watch documentaries on cults. What happened when you try to leave a cult? Either they're going to lock you down, bring you back, won't let you leave, or they'll let you leave and talk about you like a dog to everybody else. So the first red flag that'll make you ask questions of, man, is the leadership viewing me as their ownership? Try to leave and see what happens. Now, I'm not talking about because, let me say this, a lot of times people leave for bad reasons. Yeah, I knew it was going to get quiet on that part. They don't want me to talk about that part. You want me to talk about, you want to talk about my side. We don't want to talk about the congregation side. A lot of times members leave for silly, immature reasons. Such and such had an attitude that morning. I'm about to find another church. I didn't like the worship songs that morning. I'm about to find another church. Pastor ain't get enough sleep. Sermon wasn't hitting as hard as it normally was. I'm going to find me another church. Such and such got, got on my nerves. I'm going to find another church. Those are not good reasons to leave a local body. That's called spiritual immaturity and childishness. Selfishness. And we need to grow up as a church and stop doing. When I say we, I'm talking about the church as a whole. And ask me how I know. I've done stuff like that before. And I, and I regret it. I feel ashamed of this. Right. So so there is a sense of immaturity in the church where people leave for wrong reasons. But, yes, there's also this other side in which people have a justifiable reason to leave. God is calling them elsewhere. Their season is up. God may be calling them to relocate or maybe just what this particular ministry offering is offering is no longer conducive for their gifts or their skill sets or their call. Or maybe there's a doctrinal shift that took place and they got to find somewhere else. Those things happen. And leadership needs to be able to freely release people from that without taking this possessive attitude over them. But when you study the life of the Pharisees, they had ownership over the people. They they oppressed them that way. You belong to us. We belong to God. Period. 
leadership is to steward what God owns. So says he leased them out to tenants. Now look at verse 2. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. The tenants is the leadership. The servants are the prophets. The fruit is kingdom productivity. And it says, the prophets come to the leadership and they're asking where the fruit at. Now just think about what's being said there. He didn't come to the vineyard and say where the fruit was. He went to the leadership to figure out why the vineyard ain't got no fruit. I understand that we, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we all must stand before the judgment seat of Christ and every man must give an account to what he has done, I'm sorry, to the deeds done in the body, whether good or evil. That's what 2 Corinthians 5 says. It means every idle word spoken, every good deed, every bad deed, every man must stand on their own two feet before the throne of Yahweh at the judgment and give an account for what we have done. I can't blame you. You can't blame me. If you belong to Christ, at that judgment, Jesus will be standing at your right hand as your attorney, who after all the bad stuff that you have done is confessed out of your mouth, Jesus, your attorney, will apply his resurrection, uh, his, his righteousness through his crucifixion, his resurrection to your account, which is already there. But it will be actualized on the judgment. Therefore, we enter eternal life despite what we've done. We all going to go through that one day. Though we all have to give an account for what we've done as individuals, I can't ignore that it was the responsibility of the tenants to make sure there was fruit in the vineyard. This means that there must be a sense in which leadership is responsible for the fruitfulness or the lack of fruitfulness that the church experiences. Now, this is a little scary for me. Because <laughs> this means that if I, if I look out into the church and I say, man, the church is not producing the way the Bible says we're supposed to produce, I got to look at myself first and say, have I established and helped create an environment for fruit to be produced? Have I given opportunities? Do I preach every Sunday or do I give opportunity to others who have a gift? Do I got to have my face over, over everything and do I got to be involved in every event that takes place in the church or am I allowing opportunities to, for fruit to be bore by others? These are questions I got to ask myself. Let me give you an example of what happens when the leadership neglects the church and it results in a lack of fruit. According to Acts chapter 20, one of the chief roles of an elder board is not to be administrative gurus, is not to be financial geniuses, because nowadays in the church we put people in elder roles based on worldly stuff. And I'm not saying those things aren't important, but that's not, that's not what the Bible says put elders in, in, in charge for. 
Acts chapter 20 says, here's the, one of the most important roles of an elder. Paul says, tell the elders in Ephesus to protect the sheep from false teaching. Every person who has the office of elder has a moral obligation and a biblical responsibility to protect the sheep from wolves. This means that if Mr. T come into the house one day and he's like, Brian, I was online and I heard this guy on Instagram saying that Jesus was never crucified. Okay, if I don't give him answers, I'm not fulfilling my ministry. I have to find something else to do because my, my role is to protect him from that. So I got to be able to walk him through the Bible and, and through history and prove to him, no, Jesus was crucified. Because here's what the scriptures say. But if I don't do that, I say, he, not only Mr. Richardson, but everybody else got all these questions that they're hearing online and in the marketplace, and I don't have any responses. That's going to result in a lack of fruit. Now people are going to be snatched by the wolf. Not only are you going to have to answer to that, but when I stand before God, he's going to ask me, why was there no fruit amongst the people? Why didn't you protect them? Why did you not guard them from the wolf? We have a responsibility to make sure there is fruit in the vineyard. Now, verse 3. He says, and they took him. Now, this is talking about how the tenants treated the servant, who's the prophet says, and they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Now, if they came looking for fruit, okay, so the, the servant came looking for fruit, but the servant leaves empty-handed, that means that the servant didn't have any what? Fruit. So since Jesus is specifically referring to the religious leadership of his day, we need to try to figure out what were some of the things that was going on in the leadership that hindered them from producing fruit. Let me get that slide to you from Matthew 23. If you ever want to know Jesus's issue with the religious leaders of Jerusalem, just read the 23rd chapter of Matthew in its entirety. Verse 2, he says, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses's seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. He says, listen, the religious leadership sitting in Moses' seat, meaning they have a, a rightful place of authority because God established them to be authority. So when they declare the word of God, listen to it, if it's accurate. But don't do what they do. Because everything they're preaching to you, they don't do themselves. The first sign of corrupt, I shouldn't say the first, but one major sign of corrupt leadership is hypocrisy. I'm going to give you three signs. All three of these will always be present in corrupt leadership, guaranteed. The first one is hypocrisy. To say something or to put an obligation on you, but to not keep it themselves. If you read the rest of Matthew 23, Jesus talks about how 
They create great burdens and command people to lift them up, but they won't lift it up themselves. Just read the whole chapter later. But it's just hypocrisy. It's not practicing what you're preaching. Here's what, here's what you'll hear in corrupt leadership. You'll hear eloquent sermons that seem to be Holy Spirit inspired, on fire for holiness and all of that stuff. But behind the scenes, those who are saying those things are living a totally different life. This happens in every circle of corrupt leadership you can think of. It's always going to be there. Say one thing, do another. We will stand up here and we will preach Black Lives Matter and be activists for minorities. And whenever there's an injustice or police brutality case, we'll bring it into the pulpit and preach it publicly and call everybody to protest and call everybody to do right, which justice is right. And then we'll go right in the next sermon next week and then talk about how it's okay to abort fetuses in the womb when the majority of them are black. See, that's called hypocrisy. Because we only, we only believe black lives matter in a certain context. So when a black man dies at the hand of a white person, black lives matter. But when the black baby dies at the hands of heartless, irresponsible mothers, yes, not talking about all the nuance, not talking about the minority cases, but let's just call it what it is. When we're talking about a life of promiscuity, and unrepentance and sin. And then you punish an unborn child for that. And then want to use the same stage to preach, to preach against police killings. That's called hypocrisy. Gang violence all in the street. Cleveland a war zone. Chicago a war zone. The Bronx a war zone. Same preachers who preach in all the other forms of Black Lives Matter, silent when it comes to the woes of our own community. I'm not saying pick one over the other. I'm saying why not address all of it? But when there's hypocrisy, we don't do that. So we <laughs> pick and choose what's important. Say one thing. Live out another. We talk about Jesus being central. And listen, a lot of books that I have and that I've read over the years, many of those theologians come from what we call the Reformed tradition. Reformed is a, speaks of what happened in the 1400s, 1500s with the Protestant Reformation, John Calvin, Martin Luther, all of those good guys. Many guys I read come from that persuasion, right? And many of those guys are staunch for doctrine and theology. Like, you're not going to hear them make too many errors biblically, which is good. But those same people with such good doctrine justifies oftentimes the slavery that Africans went through in this country. It's in writing. It's in print. You can read it. I have it. <laughs> they say these things. 
That's called hypocrisy. Here's another thing you'll hear from the pulpit. You'll hear, hey, we don't need to be worried about the social issues that are happening out in the world. Just preach the gospel. You'll hear that a lot. You'll read it a lot from conservative Bible teachers. But then when it's voting season, now you better make sure you vote Republican now. I know what I said about that is all about Jesus, but just, just when you get that, that, that poll, you better make sure you vote Republican. And this is why you'll never hear me up here campaigning for candidates or parties or any of that. So I don't think that stuff even belongs in the pulpit. Yes, we should address politics and things like that. I understand that. But, but trying to get people to force people to vote this way, no. That's like the apostles siding with Caesar and the Romans. You don't pick that. Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. He says, if it was, my disciples would be fighting for me. But what we do, we're fighting for these worldly kingdoms and preaching something totally contrary. Hypocrisy. Next scripture. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. He's talking about the garb that the high priests would wear. They'd have that joint decked out, long robes. And they just look. You ever see somebody, you like, man, you just look religious. Like, you look, not even in a bad way. It's just like, I know you saved. Like, how could you not be saved looking like that? <laughs> it says that's how they were. But it says they did that. Why? To be seen by others. And then what do you see? And I'm not saying there's anything wrong before we even, I'm not saying there's anything inherently wrong. Y'all not about to get me on YouTube or nothing saying nothing crazy. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with rocking the robe. It's okay. A robe is a robe. The, good, the wonderful thing about the Bible is it doesn't give us a dress code, okay? It doesn't say where it is, not that. But If the heart disposition behind you dressing like that is, I want to be viewed as a prestigious character. When I walk into the grocery store, I want people to know that the bishop is here. And if that's your heart behind that, then that's corrupt leadership. Because what you're trying to do is you're trying to get noticed by men, so you want to have an appearance that makes you noticeable by men. So everything you do is to be noticed by men. And and look, here's another thing we'll see. And you see this in churches, man. Look, in the wonderful world of Instagram, you see everything these days. And I've been on there a lot lately, trying to get my own videos out there. So here's what I noticed. You have a church, and they'd do, like, something dope for the community. They'd be, like, serving a bunch of poor people. And you got all these homeless people, like, lined up at the table eating. Then the pastor will take a selfie. Out here feeding, lo- uh, feeding homeless people. Now look, there's nothing inherently wrong with church promotion, church marketing. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I think we got to balance those things. But when, you, when you're trying to take care of the lowly, who are already down and out, you think they want to be on camera before the world I bet they didn't ask permission before they took that picture. Least you could do is ask. 
But there, there's just this, I, I got to show the world what I'm doing. Jesus says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. But I got to let the whole world know, look at the fruit I'm bearing. Give me attention. Look at my church. Look at how many members are here. Look at what we're doing. That's corrupt, man. Now, that doesn't make people unbelievers, but it means that there's some repentance that needs to be taking place where everything got to be put on front street. Everything we do got to be announced. Next verse. And this is similar to the second one. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. They love to be in a place of honor, he says. But the part that sticks out to me the most is they love being called rabbi by others. They need that title. They need to be addressed, apostle, prophet, bishop. And if you don't address them that way, you're being disrespectful. You're being irreverent. Now, if somebody's being irreverent they, in their own heart, they would know that. But in most cases, it's just, I need to feel special. Now, after I'm, if many of you have been seeing the videos I've been doing online about Jehovah's Witnesses and things of that sort. The next group of videos I'm going to be doing soon is going to be about this, this corrupt leadership stuff, right? And I'm, I'm going to be talking about this because I just want people to understand, man, like w- when Jesus established his church, the goal was for everybody to be equal. And I know I sound like a broken record because I say these things all the time. But I believe this is what Jesus meant, and I believe it's uh, the 20th chapter of Matthew, where he says, let nobody call you teacher, for one is your teacher, for you are all brothers. He's not saying there's no teachers in the church. Of course they are. He anointed them. He's not saying there's no leadership. Listen, you need to have leadership in the church or the church falls apart. It needs to be there. But he's saying there's a sense of humility where we look at each other like brothers and sisters. You in the same war I'm in. Satan hates you as much as he hates me. You got the same trials that I got. You got the same temptation that I got. You got to depend on the same Jesus I got to depend on. You praying to the same God that I'm praying to. You got the same issues. We're the same. We just have a different skill set or a different area or a different level of influence. That's cool. That don't make mean we're not equals. There's something you're doing that I can't do because God didn't call me to it. That don't make us on different levels. But what was going on with these guys is they just want to be called by their lofty titles. And many of you know that's why we, one of the reasons why we try to change the culture here. Not to try to be super humble guys. <laughs> just want to go back to what the New Testament prescribes so that we view each other as brothers and sisters. Now, I don't mean if somebody prefer to be called pastor that they're necessarily corrupt. I put these disclaimers out because I'm making a lot of broad statements and I don't want you to start you visit a church and then you just paying attention to little signs array to, you know, like, oh, they corrupt. That's the B said. No, no, no. <laughs> I'm making general statements that need to be investigated if you see the seeds there. All right. All right. Let's go back to Mark 12. We almost done. Let's look at verse. 
I'm going to pick it up in verse 4. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat, and some they killed. So he didn't just send one servant looking for fruit, calling him to repentance. He says he sent another one. They beat him up. Sent another one. They beat him. Sent another. They killed. And in verse 5 it says, and so with many others. Now, when we read that, the first thing, the, the tendency is to jump to, This is how people are treated when they try to stand for the right thing, which is true. That does teach us that, that those who uh, try to call sinners to repentance are oftentimes ostracized and rejected by those who are oppressing them. But there's something deeper that I peeped there, man. Look at how many warnings were sent. To corrupt leadership. Warning after warning after warning after warning. This shows me that when we see leaders fall, whatever they did didn't just start. Because that's not the character of God. What God does is he, he's patient. Bible says that when King David uh, did what he did with Bathsheba and, and Uriah, Scholars are pretty much unanimous that David covered that sin for about three years, for an extensive period of time. That means God waited to send the prophet Nathan on him that ugly night. (laughs) If you don't know the story, God sent Nathan to David and says, hey, David told him a parable about a man who did something jacked up. And then Nathan is like, what should happen to this man? David is like, that man should die. And Nathan is like, well, you are that man. And judgment has come upon your house today. Your firstborn son has to die for this. That's a three-year period of God patiently waiting for David to come clean because God is gracious. And we even see he's doing this with unbelievers. If God is that patient with an unbeliever, how much more patient will he be with the sheep of his pasture? Let us stop viewing God as this tyrant who can't wait to execute judgment on us the moment we mess up. He's a long-suffering, patient God who's just sitting back, waiting for us to make the right choice. And then even when he does bring chastisement, he's gracious. I love what David did as a twin in David's life where David sinned and God gave David three options of consequences. He says, you want me to do this with this famine, or do you want all your enemies to pursue you for three months? David's line, it it speaks to the character of God. He says, God, I'd rather take the famine because I'd rather fall into the hands of the Lord because you are gracious before I fall into the hands of man. He says, even if you bring consequences on my life, I know if you're behind it, you are a loving God and you will not abandon those who belong to you. So let us view God as a patient God who loves us and wants us to turn away from our sins so that he can restore us to our rightful place. So we gave him all these warnings. 
And they rejected it time after time after time again. Look at what happens next. Verse 6. He has still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. This is the last person in the parable who hasn't been identified yet. But it's pretty obvious who it is. The beloved son represents Christ. And he's saying that after God sent Israel all these prophets whom they killed, the last resort was to send them Jesus in hopes that they would view him with a higher level of respect because of who he was by nature. But he says instead, they destroyed and killed him too. So they destroyed and killed all the prophets. And then when the son comes, they do the same thing to him. What this tells us about corrupt leadership is the issues that they have with the people, how they're treating the people, is really a reflection of how they view Christ. That's the real issue. We, we the people, are being exploited and misled and, and mistreated, manipulated. But what the Bible is trying to say is we're not the true target. The true target is they hate him. And we're the closest thing to him on this earth. So this is why when Paul was persecuting the church, Jesus said, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Because Jesus is one with his church. So the hatred, that corrupt, unbelieving leadership has on innocent people is a reflection of how they really feel about Christ. This is why Jesus says, don't be surprised if the world hates you, understand that they hated me first. It's really all about him. Which is why there is a sense in which, I'm not, I know I've talked very broadly about corrupt leadership, and sometimes you just have good leaders who just go astray. But there is another side of this, where the majority of corrupt leadership is just wicked. They're not saved. They don't know God. They're not born again. And that's what was going on with the Pharisees here. Their true issue is with Jesus. So if you know somebody who was in a corrupt church, under corrupt leadership, this is why you, because this is what we do. We get in those situations and we always feel like we can be the one to change things. Well, I'm going to stick around here because I feel like I'll be able to change it. That's not going to happen. Because you're dealing with unbelievers. You're not even worshiping the same God. Yeah, they may say that up here. But there's there's a lifestyle that is supposed to reflect what we say we believe. And when that's not there, the Bible says that these people are lost. So we're not going to go in no corrupt place and and change no culture. You got to leave that place. If you know anybody, or if you're visiting here and you you go to a, a place that... You see the signs there that I talked about today. Leave. Don't ask questions. Run up out of that place because the Bible gives us all a mandate to do so. One more point. We out of here. In verse 9, it says, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. 
Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Jesus says, what is the owner of the vineyard going to do with the corrupt tenants? Says he's going to destroy them. But not only is he going to destroy them, he says he's going to give the vineyard to others. The vineyard represents the people of God, right? He says, I'm going to take the people of God from the corrupt leadership, and I'm going to transfer them to somebody else. Who is the somebody else? Let me get Ephesians chapter 2. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. That's us. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. When Jesus says he's going to take the vineyard, the people of God, from the corrupt leadership, scribes, Pharisees, chief priests, and give them to others, he's talking about the transfer of leadership in which the, the apostles that he chose became the overseeing shepherds over the people of God's kingdom. So what do you see? Through the Gospels, who's in leadership? Scribes, chief priests, Pharisees. But then you get to the book of Acts after resurrection. Who's in leadership? The apostles. Acts chapter 2, the great Pentecostal sermon by Peter. Throughout the, the, the book of Acts, you see that the leadership now over the people of God has been transferred to these apostles. Why? Because he says that's the foundation. But then he says that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. What does all this mean? Remember in my introduction, I talked about whenever God removes corrupt leaders, he replaces them. Pharaoh replaced with Moses. Saul replaced by David. Pharisees replaced by the apostles. So what does that mean today? All this corrupt leadership that we see in these churches, scandal after scandal after scandal. I'm not talking about believers who fell into sin. Because you can be a believer and fall into sin. I'm talking about corruption, unrepentance, deceit, deliberate, ongoing practices of evil. God is going to remove them. And he's going to replace the people who are being torn up by them. And he's going to put them in a place where there is a righteous leadership who can properly care for them. And you'll know whether it's a righteous establishment of leadership if Jesus is the cornerstone. Look back at Mark. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The cornerstone is Christ. He's saying that you'll know the, the leadership is righteous if Jesus is, is front and center, if he's the foundation. If he's the head of the church, if he's governing the influences and the actions of the local body. So what does this tell us? Don't give up on the church. Don't give up on the church. 
Listen, I get discouraged by all this stuff, too. Just two days ago, and I'm not saying this on some TMZ stuff. I'm just because it's relevant to what I'm preaching on. Just two, two, three days ago, I get an email from David Lane, who's our district superintendent, emails all the leaders in the district, two pastors, same day expelled from the alliance due to moral failure. Two. Two at the same time. Can you imagine what those churches are going through? You got ordained clergy. Look, they weren't just sat down. They were removed from the church. That's, that's what Paul meant in, in 1 Corinthians 5 when he says, if you have a sinner who won't repent, turn them over to Satan. That means you got to put them out. That means that whoever those pastors were, and their names are on there, they didn't just sin. They were living in it unrepentantly, and they have to be removed out. You don't think that stuff is discouraging to me? <laughs> These are my co-laborers. We're in the same affiliation. Those things are hard to see, but you know what it does for me? It doesn't make me point the finger. It makes me get on my knees before God and say, Lord, please don't let it be me. Don't let it be me, God, because all of us have the potential to end up right back in the life of sin if we don't abide in the vine. So don't give up on the church. It's going to be rough. It's going to be rocky. But God will always preserve a righteous remnant who don't lead perfectly, but who lead in a godly manner. Let's pray. Jesus, these things are sobering because, God, you view sin with such a disdain. Your body was ripped and marred because of sin. You took on the wrath of Yahweh because of sin. You were rejected by your own people because of sin. You were crucified because of sin. So we know your heart towards sin, God, you hate it. But God, you love us and you love your creation. And Lord, we just want to say thank you for, for dying for our sins. Because we deserve hell and wrath. But you're so good and gracious you died in our place and then you called us to yourself so that we could become your children. God, I pray for the church at large. It's been a rough couple of years. We're seeing constant scandals, moral failures. People we thought were born again, we realized they weren't. People we thought were righteous leaders, we found out they were not. We've read their books. We've listened to their sermons. We've went to their conferences just to find out that they were wolves. God, that's a hard pill to swallow. But Lord, you said it would happen. 
and you warned us in advance and you made us a promise that you would always preserve a remnant of your people who love you. And God, I pray for people who go to churches today all over the world, all over our city, who are being manipulated and hurt, who are being taught false teaching, who are not being fed the truth of the Bible, who are not being given any real biblical depth so that they can grow in their faith, who are being sexually abused in church, who are being physically abused in church, who are being hurt by so-called Christians. God, would you mend their broken hearts? Would you bring them out of these places? And would you call them to one of your churches that you've established? Be gracious, Lord God. My heart bleeds for those people. And God, I'm just asking that you would just be good to them, that they would not give up on you. God, I pray that they would not blame you for the atrocities that's being done in your name, Lord. Don't allow your people to give up on the church. It's your bride, and you promised that there would be a church here when you return. God, help us to walk the straight and narrow path, to live a life of repentance. We are going to fall. We are going to make mistakes. We are going to sin. We are going to mess up at times. But God, I just pray that our hearts won't grow hard. Help us to always repent and confess our sin. Jesus. Lord, I pray for Living Stones Church. And God, I'm just asking that you would not allow us to lose our way. God, we're not perfect. We make mistakes all the time. God, we want to keep that to the minimum. Help myself, our governing board. God, I pray for Jody. I pray for Alina. I pray for Jason. And I pray for myself that we could lead well, that we could resist temptation, that we can care for your sheep and not treat them like property. God, if you just if you leave us to our own devices, we're going to blow it. So, God, I'm just asking for a special endowment of your spirit. I fear you and I do not want to disappoint you, God. I don't want sin. I don't want any part of it. So, God, I'm just asking right now that you would guard us from the plans of the enemy. Help us to recognize a satanic attack when it's there so that we don't fall short. And in case of a chance that we do, God, I pray that you would allow us to be humble enough to bring it to you so that we could be back in right relationship with you, Father. Anybody in our church, God, that's struggling with sin, unrepentance, God, bring them to repentance today. Uncover it for their own good. Don't allow the secret to stay. Whatever it is, God, I pray that they'll be aware of how much you love them. Lord, you said in your word that all those whom you love, you discipline. So, God, I'm just asking right now, any secret sin, any unrepentant act, whatever it is, if it's in the room, God, I pray it'll be confessed today. And that you will begin to restore your sheep. Thank you, Jesus, for being a compassionate God. We love you. We love your church. And we pray that you will help us to walk in a manner that is worthy of the call. And We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.